Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And we are joined today by Christopher Elst, Maddie Wakeley, and Marcy Doherty Elst of Theater Red. That's us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for having for, us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming on. So um, um, we were, the story of this connection is that I think I was at, I, I was having a, this past week of work for me has been super intense because <laughs> I've been, I've been training to be a manager at my cafe and then we're also in the middle of our summer performance series. We were doing, we did two performances this week and then I'm also in rehearsals. I was in a rehearsal for, um, MOT's thing, so I've just been like, ugh. And in the midst of that, I get a a lovely email from Marcy being like, hey, you know, this is so awesome. And I was like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Let's figure something out. (laughs) Well, thanks for taking the time. We just saw you guys, or we were at the same performance last night. You guys did Handle Bestiary. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, it was awesome. I'm really excited. uh, Had y'all catched the episode with Joanna, too? Is that what I'm thinking, remembering? Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She's fantastic. We love her. Yeah, she's brilliant. Um, We have a collaboration coming up. We, we do. We can't talk about the details yet, but Ooh, yes, um, yeah. theater at Milwaukee Upper Theater working together in our next show. That's cool. awesome. Yeah. Well, let's um let's build up some of that context. So tell us a little bit about Theater Red conceptually. Awesome. So Theater Red started about twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Yeah, the end of twenty thirteen, and it really started because our good friend Jared McDerris, who is a Chicago playwright. <laughs> He had written a play called A Thousand Times Good Night, which is an Elizabethan verse adaptation of uh, Arabian Nights. And he was up visiting us in Milwaukee, and we were reading it around the dining room table, and we loved this play, especially Christopher. And there's this conversation about, gosh, I'd love to see this on the stage one day. And Jared said, oh, gosh, from your lips to God's ears, please. (laughs) And so Christopher thought, well, we're both actors. Why don't we put this show on? And I thought well, we don't really have any experience producing a show or anything like that. And we thought, well, let's give it a try. So that's actually how Theater Red was born. We said, if we're going to do it, then let's actually start a company. Let's look at renting a space. Let's look at, you know, doing it, you know, kind of the right way. And we sort of just fell into it that way. And that's how we were born. And we thought pretty, pretty heavily about what we wanted our company to be about. Mm-hmm. And we founded it based on sort of three pillars. Uh, roles of substance for women so meaning not just women's roles or women in leads but also that the play or the story needs to have a a female voice or the woman has to drive the plot versus a leading woman maybe following the plot of a male protagonist so roles of substance for women um, on stage and off support of local playwrights and new works Cool. And then growth and craft for artists. So Christopher is a certified teacher with the Society of American Fight Directors and an associate instructor with Dueling Arts International. <laughs> Some helpful. So he's a professional <laughs> stage uh, combat instructor cool. and fight director. Oh, nice. So we're always looking for opportunities to do work in, in the city that involves fights. Mm-hmm. And he thought, wouldn't it be great if we also can bring that education component to the city and, and make sure that every production that we do involves some sort of growth and craft beyond just the opportunity of working with the script and the director and the actors so we decided that's what we're gonna do and sort of the rest is history so we've done um, other world premieres so a thousand times good night was a world premiere and we've done um, a world premiere by Angela Yanoni, The Seeds of Banquo, which is one of her um, Edwin Booth series plays. We did two world premieres by Liz Scheip, A Lady in Waiting and Bonnie and Bonnie. And then we also brought a Wisconsin premiere up last year in our season, which was Bachelorette by Leslie Headland. So it hadn't been done here. Oh. But so we're always looking to, you know, bring new things to Milwaukee stages and support local playwrights while putting women in the forefront of our stories and teaching a little something fun along the way. Cool. Shit. Very cool. Yeah. I know that, right? Yeah. Your elevator speech skills are barred. Yeah. <laughs> That's super important because it's like there's a w- weird balance you have to do with an elevator speech of like keeping it concise but also like getting all the information out there. Especially because when you have something like this that is so nuanced, I mean, like just right in the at the top, you bring up like a slew of feminist theory like a, like I immediately like wanted to talk a little bit about like the Bechtel test mm-hmm. because I think that's such an interesting th- I love when you know we can take these things that are kind of cinematic theoretical ideas and we can apply them to theater because it's like the, what, there is no reason for them to be like separate you know yeah um so I'm in, I got well, the other thing that I'm really interested in is um 
your experience as performers turned producers, um, how much had you worked in the Milwaukee scene? How did you feel? What was it about the Milwaukee scene that, uh, that A, was really conducive to you starting something on your own? And also, you may have recognized that there was like a niche to fill. I think from my perspective, I was constantly amazed. So I had been working in Milwaukee as a singer-actor for probably t uh, 10 years-ish before we started Theater Red, something like that, right? I age myself if I think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, that yeah, sounds I about think, right. Didn't we both start in 2007? So it was only about six years when we started it. I think 10 years. I did my first show on a dare for my 30th birthday, and I'm turning 42. Okay, oh. fair enough. So That's there fair. we go. Well, so <laughs> right, about 10 years now, but when we founded Theater oh, Red, okay. it was four sure. years ago. So. Sure. But um, yeah, I get you. So, but my experience as a woman in theater, um, was that there were so many talented women at auditions and so many talented women that I was friends with and I thought there just aren't enough opportunities for women on stage here and in particular interesting opportunities for women so for example um, with Wayward Women with, with the show that will be um, opening in July it is an opportunity for a woman to play a role that is modeled after um, Falstaff and Sir Toby Belch and Malvolio. Malvolio. So these are great, juicy male roles, right, in the Shakespeare's canon. And so there's uh, Dame Grendela who gets to play this really hedonistic, extreme character and gets to own that as a woman and just be able to go, here I am. These are all the things. I'm going to drink as much as I want, eat as much as I want, stay out as late as I want carouse as much as I want. <laughs> um, <laughs> Contrasted with who Maddie's playing, um, Dame Anu, who is the most pious, most proper, most uh, virginal, pristine. And, and it's just an opportunity. So that's kind of what I saw was like, wow, we've got all this great female talent and just not enough roles for them. I want to see mm -hmm. all of my female friends doing things and doing things that you don't normally get to do as a woman yeah. on stage, in particular with, with well, the sword fighting and things mm -hmm. like well, that. Well, not only that, but talking about, as you were talking about the Bechdel test, you know, like what one of the things we talked about early in the, the founding of Theater Red was we felt that women end up playing four roles. You know, you play Juliet and you play the mother and you play the nurse and you play the old woman and that's it. Those are all your roles mm -hmm. and you're stuck with that. So we thought we've got, there's got to be more complex parts for women out there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and women and, and not being, as Marcy was saying, led by a male character. That's, mm -hmm. that's the part of the, that's the major part of the role is that they're trying to do something to impress a man. So we really like this play because there's nine, no, seven female characters, all very different. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think that's super interesting, and I think it um, it reminds me a lot too of what we were talking about before we started recording, which is um, your work portraying Disney villains, oh, yes. which is cool. Because I think uh, the other thing that you were mentioning that you were doing that with that is that there are a lot of these male roles that are Disney villain characters, but you're willing to go um, and and play a male character, and I think it's something that um, I'm going to bring up. Uh, something that's been happening recently in the like drag scene it seems like mm -hmm. is there's a lot more women doing like drag king competitions mm -hmm. and stuff like that which is really interesting and I, I don't I don't I'm not uh, in no way am I an expert on drag culture and, and know what that's looked like in the past <laughs> period of time yeah but um, but I think it's an interesting thought right that it's even in what we'd consider like a fringe maybe more progressive area there is still uncharted ground. Like there's still room for women to play and do something different, you know? Um, well, yeah, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say the, the, um, the hair and makeup artist who sort of developed this idea, his name is Eric Welch, and his company is called Characters. So, um, characters like Eric, so I think that's oh. clever. <laughs> <laughs> but, so he really had this idea, um, he had done, yeah, it was Christopher's idea actually, oh. the characters. <laughs> We were, we were at Wendy's one day talking about it, me, Chris, and Eric. I love Wendy's, so. <laughs> give, me a, give me a clap back. This podcast brought right. to um, But anyway, we were at Wendy's one day, Sorry. and we were just brainstorming about it. And just Christopher went, 
what about characters? Your name is Eric and you're doing characters. And you were half kidding and we loved it. So it went from there. But so his idea was that he wanted to take me and transform me into all these different villains, um, male, female, or animals. So I will be um, Scar later this year. So mm -hmm. I will be a lion. But um, you know, when I do Gaston, for example, coming up later this summer, it's not gonna be sexy female Gaston. It will be male Gaston. When I right. did Jafar, it was me as a man. And just the, the transformation, you know, if you looked at the pictures, people look at them and go, I can't believe that's the same person. And to mm -hmm. him, that's so fascinating to be able to do that and make make the point and tell the story that you can transform a single model actress and, and make her look all these different ways. What I like about that is the idea that um, a woman doesn't necessarily have to be the sexy version of something all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like there is, there's room in the female female identity to abandon femininity and to abandon the need to be desirable mm -hmm. and just be a character. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a lot of what you're talking about with these plays that you're putting on, specifically wayward women. Like there is a like a debaucherous, like you know, hedonistic female character, but then there's also Maddie's character, which is mm -hmm. very virginal, and they are equally powerful. True. Mm -hmm. And would you mind talking a little bit more about your character, Maddie? Yeah, I mean, we're still in the very early process oh, yeah, of yeah. it, but we're still, I'm discovering more with the method that we're using, the unrehearsed method for the script and all that jazz. Like, oh, okay, so this is the way that she responds to these things, or this is her way of deflecting or her power that she holds um, as the pious virginal one. But yeah, she's one of the two dames, Dame Anu versus Dame Grendela, and two polar opposites in every way possible. And for Anu, she's all about doing the right thing, putting right before everything else. This is the way that this is, and we shouldn't do it any other way. So yeah, very Malvolio in that sense. So when um, Grendela decides to take over or try to do whatever she will with these two um, men, however, we're of the belief that one of the men is actually a woman when they come aboard <laughs> the um, island. Um, Grendel decides, oh, I'll, I'll help them out. You know, it's fine. Just in Anu's mind, like, it would be the end of the world as we know it. Like, this is not the course of action that we need to take. We need to show them how to, um, just like how to do what is right. Like I was saying before, do what is right. And there's nothing going on down here like in my <laughs> nothing going on I don't have any attraction whatsoever to uh, to this handsome dude in front of me it's fine but yeah he really does kind of um I don't know if it technically passes the Bechtel test because Cordelius is kind of the central figure that comes on the island and he affects all the women in some way including Anu whether she likes it or not but um just how women respond to that and use their power, like fluff up their feathers a little bit or succumb, I don't know if that's the right word, but just how um, this opposite sex has similar effects to these women as lust-seeking men in any Shakespeare play and everything. And like, oh, like a nice pretty face, what are we gonna do about that? But not in Anu's book, no. This is just <laughs> well, it's, right versus wrong. It's sort of, if you think of it as a, loosely gender swap Twelfth Night in the sense mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. these two men find themselves on this island of Amosa, which is an island ruled by Amazonian women, and they get some bad advice maybe from um, a pirate mm. fleeing the island that um, in order to be able to survive they will need to pass as women because men are the second-class citizens on this island. They're the workers and the playthings. Uh, and women have all the all the power. So it's recommended that they dress up as women in order to um, sort of make their way on this island and not get thrown into some sort of um, slavery, sex slavery or other. So uh, one of the men does dress up <laughs> as, a, as a woman mm. to try to pass. And, and then the, the, the other man is, is her brother or her servant. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how they try to, that's how they first arrive on the island. And of course the women, you know, on the island, they all notice this attractive new man, fresh meat maybe on the island, <laughs> and um, Grendela has an appetite for everything. So that particular character is right away um, going, mm-hmm, 
Yep. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, Dame Anu is he's no... He's handsome, but... He's handsome, <laughs> but we need to behave as knights. So mm-hmm. uh, Grendel and Anu are, are knights in the Queen's court, and there's a certain standard for behavior mm-hmm. in Anu's mind for how they um, yeah. behave. So that, that ends up being sort of the beginning of it all. And, of course, there's a whole lot of other foolery and fun mixed right. in there. It is an Elizabethan sex comedy is what we are um, billing it as. So... Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting to me. So I, the thing that we've talked about a few times in a few uh, recent episodes especially is representation and kind of how to do representation well. And I think there are a lot of aspects to that. And um, one of the things that we kind of are, have been hitting on a lot lately um, is like tokenism versus like actually represented true experiences, right? And I think it's, uh, I think that this applies really well to the, to the gender dynamic because it'd be one thing um, if, you know, it was just like, oh, we'll just have uh, some of the characters, like, we'll switch the gender and it'll just, it'll mm-hmm. just work. But then it's another thing entirely to have women in the administration, women in the decision booth, women in the people that, in the decision booth, what is that? But like, <laughs> in the, in the, in the, in the chair, you know, like, ha- having <laughs> women... The chair, wait, is the chair in the decision booth? Yeah. I think so. It's okay. like, it's like a sound booth, but it's where the decisions are made. Oh. Right. <laughs> yeah. How was I never a part of that? You weren't in the booth where it happened. That's yeah. good. No, that's good. I'm glad. Nailed it. <laughs> um, but I'd love to be. I'd be. Uh, I'd love to um, hear a little bit about your, about your thoughts about that. About how important it is, especially when it comes to something like this, where there are there's a lot of exploration to be done, but then there are also lines to be drawn, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, what do you think about that? <laughs> well. Th- do you want to talk to this, Christopher, a little bit? This was uh, a play sure. that when you read it okay. a couple of years ago, you loved it. It was still, Jared was still working on the drafts, and because yep. he's a friend of ours, we get to read the plays while he's writing them, and we're such big fans of his work. But when you read this, you went, I want to do this play. It's funny, and it's got amazing roles for women. And do you want to talk a little yeah, bit about, sure. like, um, especially the male voice talking I about how like, that's important? I feel like we have... Um, we have some influence over what Jared writes. Not that we say what he, we don't commission specific things from him, mm-hmm. um, but because he knows we will put on his plays, he tends to try to find plays with more active roles for women. And he feels the same way. Just many of times he's taking things that are historical. And when you're taking something historical, you're dealing with the fact that women didn't play these larger parts in history. Right. So even one of his plays, Passion of Boudicca, which is all about this warrior queen um, from ancient England, Britain, Britain. Um, there are only three or four, he puts three or four women in it, and, and he tries that, but then the primary antagonists are all male, um, and so it's a little bit difficult for him to put more women in it without being historically, you know, disingenuous. But uh, this play premiered in uh, Chicago in March of last year, and we we had been kind of along the ride watching it, and then we wa- went and saw it, and it was brilliant, because exactly what I, what, what I wanted, which is there are so many varied roles for women, so many varied places for them, just like there are in other plays for men, where you're like, oh, that guy is like this, and that guy is like this. Whereas so many times you watch another play and it's, well, that one's the ingenue, and we don't have to have a personality for her, she just has to be young and pretty and sing well, that's it. And that's the comedic sidekick, so she's the the friend. And that's the friend, and and we never get anything more than that. And so, but as you were talking about representation, you can't, you can't progress um, theatrically until you offer those roles to other people. Mm-hmm. And putting gender swapping other plays is is one way to do that. But a lot of times those characters are written with that gender because the playwright wants them to be that gender. Mm. They they have a perspective from that gender. So instead, what we need is new works that focus on creating a wider variety within a certain gender or within mm-hmm. a certain perspective. Um, which is why I really love this play. And I mean, on top of that, it's just funny. The play is just funny. Um, it's instead of instead of watching this the typical say uh, Boeing Boeing or something like that farce where it's men behaving badly and the women are the victims. It's quite the other way around. Mm-hmm. It's women behaving badly and the men are the victims. So maybe it's commenting more on masculine culture, but it's coming from a perspective of women of differing personality types mm-hmm. um, interacting with each other. Um, there is even a very strong idea, though, on the island of Amosa, that the Amazon culture is really all about equality. So even though the queen um, herself has Amazon guards that follow her uh, around all the time on stage and, and make some commentary on things, you never get the sense that there's a huge hierarch, 
um, hierarchical, there we go, divide between the queen and, and the guards. Um, it really is a sense that there is a sense of female equality on this island across these women who have found peace for many, many, many years living in a society that they've structured that way with the women in charge and without, um, you know, ha inviting war with other countries and, and justice and peace. So, and the Duchess is so determined to keep that peace so that when this disturbance of a man and a woman um, coming ashore, <laughs> that um, as much as Anu and Grendela have different opinions on what we should do about it, she's very much like, we worked so hard to get here. Don't screw this up or just you two stay as far away from each other as possible. Like, it's kids who are knights, basically, in that moment. Like, two kids who are very skilled and very articulate, just it all falling to shit. There I said the first swear word. Yeah, there's so many there's so many roles that are clearly hearkening to Shakespeare male Shakespearean roles, but it made so much more sense to me in the beginning when they wind up on the island of the pirate going, disguise yourself, not unlike Viola dis deciding to disguise herself, but it makes so much more sense of, well, yeah, no, duh, like, you don't know what's gonna happen if, like, a male presence comes here that makes sense, much mm -hmm. like a woman arriving in uncharted territory going, well, I need to find pants and boots because I don't know what they're gonna do to me <laughs> if I show up, especially at that uh, time in history, but there's just so many, like, again, like, we're early, so we're still discovering these bits, or at least I am still discovering these bits and pieces, but... Yeah, first week of rehearsal, yeah. so... Yeah, no. <laughs> Um, I think that's such an interesting thought of like, and something that you don't really think about in applying it to real life mm -hmm. is that when you look at a character like Viola, who's like, well, I'm going to dress as a man to, to protect myself yeah. is like, there's so much of that in our, in a woman's day to day life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like this actually happened to me where I was, I was outside of a restaurant and some dude was being super weird to me. And like, I... He was like, oh, I'm single. And I was like, and immediately it was like, oh, my boyfriend's inside. Like, mm -hmm. and it was just like this immediate protective armor. And like later I was like, maybe I should have said my husband or something <laughs> like that. So it was like more secure. And I was like, why the fuck do I have to like cloak myself in unavailability to be like protected? And it's this really interesting dynamic. I like that in this play, there is that dynamic of like, turning that idea on its head of like this man doesn't know what he's in for so like you better disguise yourself and like make sure that everything's going to be okay first not that like the setting a precedent of like other genders being attacked is good <laughs> but i mean it's just an interesting like ideological yeah. shift well it brings it into relief right because yeah. we, we don't necessarily see systemic um uh prejudices but then when we rotate it and they go, oh, that's what it must feel like. Mm -hmm. right. that, that allows uh, men who don't have that perspective every mm -hmm. day to go, oh, wow, that I didn't think it would be that bad. And then women go, no, it's, it's that bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> also this idea of what the perception is because you have the pirate fleeing the island or trying to get off the island. He's not been persecuted, but it's not what he thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, he's pirate <laughs> trying to get off this island and he, he thought he needed to dress up like a woman. I don't want to give too much away. Hmm. So his recommendation or his advice to these guys is you better put on a skirt or you're going to be in trouble. Um, but actually what happens is that's their perception of what it is to be a woman mm -hmm. and to pass safely on this island is to put on a dress. These are Amazonian women. They're in power suits. These women oh. are not wearing dresses. So you have now a man with that perception of what it is to be a woman arriving in court in a dress and they're all going okay i i think there's a line i have where it's like are you guys so poor that all you have are like drapes to like drape yourselves in? <laughs> right because the women on this island don't wear dresses mm -hmm. these are warrior women but that idea that that was the perception oh it's an island of women you better put on a dress women on this island are wear dresses yeah they're warrior women so they're in pants cool i don't know i like so much of what so much of what y'all are saying about um, like these character archetypes is so interesting to me. I'm I'm thinking of what you said about Grendela about how she like um, she just like consumes everything. She like drinks as much as she wants, eats as much. I can't think of a 
is Grendel a, a protagonistic character, or is she... She's kind of my foil. Yeah. She, okay. Throughout the whole thing. But yeah. she's not, like, a direct villain. So no, the no. idea of a hedonistic woman in a non-villainous mm-hmm. role, and also a prominent woman in a show who eats as much as she wants. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of visibility of, like, bodies that take up more space Mm -hmm. is such an important thing in theater and the idea of like yeah she eats as much as she wants and she drinks as much as she wants but she's still fucking powerful and it and like it that's secondary that's secondary to and it's not her well i don't know if it's her downfall but (laughs) (laughs) i haven't seen the play but it's like it's like not making a joke out of it exactly it's not making a joke out of it as a curvy actress that's one thing I really appreciate about this particular character and about Jared writing a character like this um, is it is inclusive of every kind of female shape size age everything so as a curvy actress I like to see roles where I go I could see myself in that role and that's not true for all roles based on how I look so same book same page like <laughs> that's important to me and, yeah. and I, I like that but yes um, Grendela is a really funny character who I think your description she consumes everything she consumes she's a consumer <laughs> of, of everything she is just a larger than life sort of force and um, such a bon vivant in so many ways but she's got no rules or limits on anything she says or does which of course causes a lot of friction (laughs) (laughs) but they have these great moments where they're hurling insults at each other very much like you said you it's like going back to grade school they're sniping at each other right in front of the queen who's sitting there going i told you to shut up (laughs) so it's um there's a lot of great humor in that but yeah exactly that i love that representation of a woman that can eat and drink and do all of those things um, and and still have power and agency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anu doesn't like it, but the Duchess never comments on Grendela no. being too much of a glutton or because she's a warrior or a drunker. Yeah. She's like yeah. she can she all she needs to be is a general. I don't care what else she does. Yeah, <laughs> it's only Anu who's always like. Eh. And she eventually tells me she's like, why don't you try just being the opposite of yourself? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she does. See what that a, does for you. There's a moon <laughs> festival that occurs, mm-hmm. and and the advice the the queen gives you is why don't you be someone other than yourself for the night? <laughs> Let okay. loose a little bit because there's a lot of jokes made at Anu's expense yes. about how um, pent up she is. And the cool. burnt to her Ernie, the uh, <laughs> Bud Abbott to her Luke Costello, basically. Yeah. yeah, except we don't like each other. <laughs> no. Cool. Um, the other thing that I'm always really, we talk about a lot on the show, but um, unpacking the buzzword of accessibility, um, which I think is really interesting, especially we both come from opera. And so there are a lot of traditions and a lot of ways that things are done and um, a lot of ways that a lot of things that for your average layman that would be daunting or really hard to kind of like wrap your head around. And so I'm interested um, in all of the Shakespearean references and I'm, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure if this is true or not, but it seems like you have a lot of Shakespearean experience. Um, as you've been producing, putting on things, like how have you dealt with uh, accessibility and not just in the like, you know, like, oh, well, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a cliche way of dealing with fixes, but like, um, but like actually figuring out, I don't know, like how the, to. The classic like opera example is like taking Tosca, which is like this crazy, you know, this like lofty whatever, and bringing it to a low income school where it's like. The, but then not really like, changing anything about yeah, it. Yeah, like, just like bringing a very lofty. Pro- <laughs> <laughs> like, Shit. can't you relate to these? You can't even say it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so disgusted. <laughs> um, what is this nonsense? I was uh, uh, really. Sorry, y'all. I just briefly died. Um, <laughs> no, but we were talking about accessibility and how um, an, an old practice was to take lofty productions of very inaccessible ideas and presenting them to a crowd that really doesn't have a relationship with it and being like, how was that? (laughs) And so 
we're wondering how, you know, as producers and lovers of the Shakespearean style and craft, how do you approach accessibility? Well, our, our company, actually, the first thing we did was, it's called an unrehearsed production, um, but it's actually original practice Shakespeare. It's something that has a lot of research and experiments done about it, that Shakespeare's plays were produced for the people. Um, they weren't produced necessarily to have this lofty um, language to them. And while Elizabethan audiences were much more in love with words, which is why Shakespeare would invent some, just so people would come and hear new words, um, <laughs> it's not meant to exclude anyone. It's meant to be inclusive. And so the original practice of Shakespeare is much more like a sporting event uh, where the audience is in involved directly all of the time. And if you don't understand something that just happened, you can either ask because you can, the audience is encouraged to talk through the performance. Um, that's for the unrehearsed, but ours won't be quite like that. But, um, but also Shakespeare has been criticized in modern times for repeating himself over and over again. And he says the same thing. And at the end of the play, someone recaps. And the idea is that if you didn't get it, here's the plot. I'm mm -hmm. working right now with a bunch of teenagers on this same practice. And I keep asking them, try not to put your brain in this. What did Shakespeare mean? Instead, just tell me what you saw in the scene. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they'll say, oh, well, this person was trying to get with this person and this person didn't like it and went over there. And like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's all Shakespeare was saying. He just has other words for it. Mm -hmm. um, so getting, getting your head into this space of everything Shakespeare says has to be treated with this, you know, with, with gloves, white yeah, gloves. White gloves. And, and, and touched. He didn't write that way. He wrote for the people. Um, and Jared is a very strong proponent of original practice. And he wrote his plays with that in mind. There is this idea that Shakespeare is uh, for academics or for mm. people who like poetry, uh, and and there's, I, I don't, it's strange idea that it's like you said it's inaccessible because it's language we're not used to hearing. Uh, it is poetic. It's words that we don't know. Well, like Christopher said, at Shakespeare's time, people didn't know those words either. He made a lot of them up. Um, Jared made some words up in this play, so there will be people who like, what's this word mean? It is a brand new word Jared invented. We don't need to ask him. Um, <laughs> figured out through context. Or yeah, the way figured the actor out through context. <laughs> context. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is, so my niece, Amelia, comes to all the theater red shows that are age appropriate. And I think when she was about six <laughs> or seven. like one out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when she was about six or seven, she came to see um, an unrehearsed performance of... Twelfth night? Uh... Well, she's seen a bunch of them, but yes, it was either Twelfth Night or it was um, Mary, Wise? Mary Wise of Windsor. Neither of which are age appropriate. Well, but it would have been for her because she doesn't really understand. But so you've got you've got my mom who has this idea in her head that maybe Shakespeare is you know difficult or inaccessible, um, contrasted with you know a six year old child. They're both watching this. If you asked Amelia after the show what happened, she could tell you exactly what happened. You know, this person was hiding from this person, and this person likes this person, but they don't like them. And, and it's just because she doesn't have any of those preconceived notions about what this is supposed to be. So she can sit and watch it without those filters and things that happen to us as we get socialized and go to school and get taught that this is hard. Right. And so I don't think it's um, inaccessible at all, but we work really hard to take the language and through understanding exactly what we're saying, right? It's really important that the actors know exactly what they mean when they're saying these words that might be atypical to our ears. Mm -hmm. We find that a really, really delving into the text and understanding what the meaning is, what we're, what we're saying, and even using, um, you know, gestures or blocking or whatever you would do to help tell that story if you didn't have your regular language makes it crystal clear to the audience. And I just think people, if they, if they go, I don't know if I want to see a, a verse play, they should give it a try because it's not as um, intimidating as, mm -hmm. as people often think it is. Yeah. So I, I think we've done that. I think we've done Shakespeare a disservice over the years, or whoever the we is, but by you know putting it up on this pedestal and white gloving it, um, because it, it really is a bunch of dick jokes and fart jokes, and <laughs> you know it's it's a lot of real fun body humor. I think the biggest comment that I always got after specifically a Shakespeare show or exiting a Shakespeare show that I've seen is people going. Well, the beginning, like the first ten minutes, they weren't good, but then they, but then they got their stuff together, and it's like they weren't getting their stuff together. Your ear was adjusting to <laughs> yeah. what the these words were and like the pattern, like the poetry in it and everything. So, 
I'm not like trying to demean anyone who's seen it for the first time, but like it does take a while for your ears to adjust, hence him repeating himself right. sometimes <laughs> in the beginning of, in case you missed it, mm-hmm. this is what's happening, all of which Jared does very well in mm-hmm. the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm always interested in that because I think when we get into these kind of like accessibility conversations, a lot of it really comes down to education. And, it's, and education is such a weird hurdle in that a lot of times it's not as big of a whole hurdle as it will seem. Like, you don't know how big the hurdle is until you've gotten across the, like, educational barrier. What's the... There's an actual word I'm looking for. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I like but, educational barrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a decision booth. <laughs> um, Once you're in the decision booth, you've crossed the educational barrier. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. And then you can sit in the chair. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the chair. Once you get to the chair, you're Once you get to the chair, you're yeah. golden. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, I think it's... Uh, I think it's just interesting that it's like a misconception that mm-hmm. it's not as daunting as you think. But then it's also like in the job of the like administrators of organizations to try and find ways to tackle the the fear of the unknown, you know? Well, and also what you were saying about um, like your, your niece versus your mother seeing this play is um, I think that education can sometimes color our perception of things so while education is very and i'm i'm not sitting here being like school is bad school is ruining artists because i'm I'm not school is very important go to school but like (laughs) (laughs) but i think that um in terms of how in some educational settings you know the classics are presented is in a way that's like oh mm-hmm. it is a lot of white gloving it is a lot of you know preciousness and like oh well these this is our this is our artistic heritage and mm-hmm. so it needs to be handled very delicately and it's like no like throw it up throw that out the window mm-hmm. um a really good example of that that i love is slings and arrows mm-hmm. yes. oh my god you haven't seen that what oh, oh every, my god every directorial oh, it's so <laughs> about how they just like he, God, he just like just Jeffrey Tennant. Just Jeffrey, just Jeffrey Tennant. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's amazing. You have to see. You have to watch this. Yeah. So, what is this? It is. It is a show, a Canadian show about um, this Shakespeare festival in Canada that um, the the longtime director of it dies suddenly and tragically, and so they have an interim director come in who. Um, was a longtime like repertory actor with mm-hmm. this company who was jilted and like separated himself like via mental break. <laughs> um, and so they bring him back to be the um, interim director and um, he's like haunted by the the ghost of the now dead director mm-hmm. and like so there's all this like drama going on but at the same time it's just like incredible shakespeare <laughs> of of just like some of the meatiest and like so well broken down and like in the first season there's this actor this like hollywood hotshot who comes in to play hamlet and he's mm-hmm. like oh i'm so intimidated and he's like stop it like here's what this actually means like and it, it, it's such an amazing breakdown of, like, this is not lofty. No. Like, this is just storytelling at its finest, and you mm-hmm. need to really delve into that and, like, sing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. no, you gotta watch One it. One of Theodore Red's, like, sub-principles um, that we... It may end up being a, a tenet at one point, um, but the... Can't have a fourth! A fourth tenet! Can't have a fourth tenet! <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna destroy the whole... The whole cause yeah. of cards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, like one of the sub principles that Marcy and I talk about frequently is we want to produce theater for people so when they come in, they don't leave going, I will never go see another theater show. Mm-hmm. Um, not because that they don't they don't get it or any of that. Usually our, our, our like uh, Liz Shipe's work is very uh, very accessible to a modern audience. Um, but we want them to leave going, I didn't know theater was like that. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know I could just sit and enjoy it like it's a television program, except better because we get we get the actual direct energy of the people on stage and the direct energy of the audience which is why theater i think and and i'm sure opera as well Mm -hmm. i've only seen a few but i get the same vibe there um where 
it's different. It's a different mode of communicating these stories and a better one, I think, in many ways. Because what television and film does really well, theater it, they will never do what theater can do. And so theater keeps trying to move toward television and film instead of doing what theater does well, which is be theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of our, our mission here is to go, when you come into a theater ed show, you're going to see something you haven't seen before, some, some version of it you haven't seen before. Um, whether it's we had really good fights and spectacle in Bonnie and Bonnie with a way huge cast of people and it was just an enormous production for our small little theater (laughs) Um, whereas this one is a smaller production but you're going to see a brand new Elizabethan verse play that's only been produced once before and you're going to see it in a style that will not have you going I don't really like Shakespeare I was bored (laughs) you won't be bored you can say you don't like the show. You can say you don't like theater, but I promise you will not be bored. Yeah. <laughs> um, it will it will reach you on some level, even if it's just I'm giggling through the whole thing because th- this is very silly things that people are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a that's an important part of that uh, accessibility claim is you have to if it we we yes we have built an audience. We have a lot of actor friends. We have a lot of theater friends. Um, we have some patrons that come back to all our shows because they love theater, but we get a lot of new audience members mm-hmm. um, just by virtue of how we market, thanks to Marcy. Um, and so we always keep that fresh in our mind. What if a person has just walked in off the street and they've never seen a theatrical production before? We must cater to them. Um, theater people are going to get it. <laughs> Let them get it. Yeah. Let's get people that haven't seen it before involved. And that's super important. That's something, another thing we talk about too is that um, in Chicago especially, there are a lot of people that are making art for other artists, which is, which is great. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of um, progressing of the art form that you can do in that, in that, you know. In that space. But in a lot of ways too, it's an, it's an educated and elitist bubble, you know, when you're not trying to expand who you're reaching out to. Um, so I'd love to actually hear a little bit about that. Like kind of what have you found that's worked to... Um, expand into areas that uh, haven't. Sorry. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I, I think one thing that helps us is we sort of have to reach new audiences because we don't have our own brick and mortar, so we right. are itinerant. So we rent different spaces, which by virtue of that puts us in different parts of the community for almost every show that we do. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bonnie and Bonnie, we did in uh, collaboration with Wisconsin Lutheran College, right on their campus. Um, in their beautiful, beautiful um, Robbie Theater space there. And that brought a completely different audience to Theater Red because it was folks associated with the university or in Wauwatosa who knew about the theater there on campus. Um, contrasted to Renting the Alchemist Theater down in Bayview, that's a completely different group of people. So kind of just the fact that we rent different spaces out in different parts of the city gives us an advantage there to reach different audiences. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing that we do is You know, we have done a wide variety of shows in our short tenure as Theater Red, from um, world premiere Elizabethan verse plays to uh, female pirate adventures with lots of sword fighting to a play about women, a bachelorette is what I'm speaking of, uh, a play about women the night before a friend gets married and the kind of the, the mean girl jealousy behind the scenes coupled with depression, doubt, self-loathing, and a massive amount of substance abuse. So, you know, now for something different, you know, like, I I don't think we've done anything the same (laughs) twice in our short tenure. So it's sort of like, if you didn't like, if that wasn't your particular style of of theater or entertainment, well, try this because it's going to be something different. Mm -hmm. So I think by virtue of working with local playwrights and doing new works, and the fact that we rent spaces, that really gives us an advantage as far as trying to reach new audiences. Um, I think the other way is kind of getting back to, again, representation. If you're telling the stories, um, if you're telling the same stories, featuring the same types of characters, the same people are going to come back and you might not grow a new audience. If you start telling a different story and representing different people on stage, people in your audience that can look up onto your stage and see themselves Mm -hmm. in those characters, I think that's when you start to really kind of expand that audience, and especially for people that aren't um, avid theater fans, that, that they go, I hadn't seen myself there before. That person reminds me of me, or that person looks like me. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Anything you want to add that I 
<laughs> well, in terms of a more educational perspective, I have TA'd and taught um, on and off with First Stage Children's Theater, which um, has been producing, I think, at least two new plays or musicals almost every single year and have done a really great job of outreach, of like going literally into schools or finding ways to bring schools over there. And their kids and are at that blossoming age where everything is like new and different and uh, is going to seem cool no matter what. But yeah, with things that still even are treated with white gloves, like Shakespeare, because it's like one harder nugget to crack when it comes to just, I feel like from the moment that they're born, it's like, oh, Shakespeare is scary, or oh, opera, like classic stuff, like don't, that's boring, don't pay attention to that. But it was interesting for me to sit in with people like Matt Wiggy, John McClay, who have years of experience with the text, but just reducing it to, as we were saying before, just what did you hear or what did you get from this scene like we were <laughs> introducing the first saying of king lear to a group of fifth oh graders and <laughs> there's so much text and lear just talks 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 <laughs> but that's when like the drama for anyone who knows the play that's when the drama just starts right away of the youngest daughter cordelia saying i don't want to express how much i love you like my love should be enough and he just loses it and like uh, relationships are broken like right and left but just reading through it with them and having kids standing up and reading for it we were slightly concerned like this is a lot of text let's just see what they get from it but um, we were expressing how do you think that the two older sisters were telling the truth when they were expressing how much they loved him or do they just want a lot of land and one of the girls just raised her hand and was like whoa 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 guys She's just trying to get a kingdom up in here. (laughs) Okay, so it's not something that will completely go over people's heads. There's so many different um, integrations and implanting, uh, mainly with Hamlet I've seen, like in correctional facilities and just how it seems like it's been done so many times, but like the results and like the humanity that is found underneath five-year-olds or people who are on year 10 of their time or something like that, it's very... I still have yet to finish it, but there is a podcast um, about that out there, and the name is escaping me now. But um, I worked at Chicago Shakespeare really briefly, too, more with the guest services stuff, but I sat in on a lot of the educational programs that they had, everything from having um, ASL-interpreted performances, how those huge chunks of text are just stripped down to their bare words or signs, as it were, and the high school program that they do where they bring in all of these schools and are with them for like eight weeks over the summer and they do a show at the end like on the stage and just like this is something that you can do you can say these words and find a passion that maybe they didn't know they had before and it sounds so cliche and so like it's all within you like Mm -hmm. art like express yourself but (laughs) that's what got me hooked on it from like second grade up just like oh I don't feel like I'm cocooned anymore I feel at peace or like I feel comfortable which was hard as a which was hard as a second grader (laughs) (laughs) well I want to so I want to talk a little bit about because you are a theater Christopher you are a theater educator Mm -hmm. um you have experience you are a theater educator as well yes and you also did the first stage track Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin so a lot of our listeners are from Chicago first stage What is the actual name of it? The theater company itself is First Stage Children's Theater, Mm -hmm. but the other thing that it gets a lot of attention for is the First Stage Theater Academy, which initially was during the summer, but is now, like, increased tenfold and is a year-round Well, and it's like, honestly... it's the gold standard of of theater education in the U.S. Didn't Catherine Duffy do it, too? Yes. And also Ryan? Ryan Stamaker? Yeah. Oh, he might have, yeah. Yeah. All the people, like, if you list a name, most likely they've done something. And, like, I'm honestly, of the theater professionals that have come out of Milwaukee, I'm in the minority in that I did not do first Mm -hmm. Um, aid. I kind of, yeah. Yeah, Um, and just so many people who have gone to such, to, like, great acclaim have come out of these, you know, Sunset, uh, Sunset Playhouse and First Age have just blossomed and so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about what about these educational programs what are I guess I'm wondering what they're doing right Hmm. 
I can say for first stage what they're doing, right? Like the phrase that I heard from day one when I came in there as a, again, a second grader, third grader was life skills through stage skills. Mm -hmm. So it's not a theater camp or like musical theater where we're five, six, seven, eight, like just gonna perform all the time. It's very much going into an improv class and I've been in there as a teacher where they think (laughs) we're gonna be funny and we're gonna be like, who's lying? It's like, no, let's, communicate with one another like what do you think this person is feeling if they're just like dropped in front of everyone else in front of a whole group of people it's um finding compassion and connection with everyone else in the room until at the end of two weeks or however long you're there you realize oh that's what you need in order to create a community in a theatrical setting like that's how you put a show together that's how things work better when you are able to articulate to people or when you're able to emote or um, emphasize with someone and uh, yeah so I think just that line life skills through stage skills is something that they truly do hold up on their mantle if you will of like this is why we're here and this is what we're doing versus creating future actors future directors what have you Mm -hmm. they are kind of doing that at the same time with the older students and with my (laughs) generation who has gone through it I like you said I think it's hard to find someone from this community that did not at some point get involved with that company, <laughs> yeah. but, but we welcome you. <laughs> it's, I, I feel I feel like a unicorn. Yeah, right? <laughs> cool. Speaking from Sunset Playhouse's perspective, um, the education director there, Erica Navin, is really good about. Oh, she's the best. Isn't she good? Yeah. She um, she's really good about choosing specifically her instructors um, and choosing instructors who have that same philosophy about. You know, being engaged with the arts isn't about being a really good singer and dancer. That stuff you can train, and that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but being a good artist is about engaging with your community and trying to find ways to get more people involved and trying to find empathy. And so her Bug and a Rug series is really good about going into inner city schools. And we, uh, we perform all over the place. And then our last part of our Bug and a Rug, all of them have very specific lessons like... Um, they're not hammered home in a like this is what we're doing but the characters are learning something about what kids have to go through like oh it's it's better to be yourself than it is to 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 subdue yourself under some other regime which is not how i wanted to say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's better to be yourself or the, the classic anti-totalitarianism yeah exactly that's play. what yeah. rug's all about uh, a <laughs> super hardcore liberal agenda yeah um no it's <laughs> It's things like, you know, how to deal with bullies um, mm-hmm. without becoming a bully yourself or you know, things that kids have to deal with. But what we find is at the end, we always have a question and answer section and um, the kids are truly engaged. They go, why did this happen? And we also say, we answer specific like theater questions like, hey, what is a costume designer or how did you make those props? And we, we are very careful to, to keep an eye about there, there's so much to do in the theater. There's so much to do in the arts. Um, so we say, oh, this is our director and stage manager, Erica, and we have a person who composed all the music, and we have a person who built all these props for us. We couldn't do this if we didn't have all these things out here for us. So that there are kids that don't want to be performers, but they want to be involved in the arts, and we try to involve that as well, saying, hey, uh, there's ways to be involved in the arts that, that are great. Like, maybe you're really good with your hands and you like to build stuff. Well, everybody needs set painters and set designers and set construction. So um, please join us and become a group. Don't don't let yourself feel like you're lesser because you're not someone who wants to be on stage talking to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is great. <laughs> cool. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. So the last thing we always do with our guests is a one-minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Um, for each of them, actually. Uh, and sometimes that is uh, very obvious, like an upcoming performance. And other times um, it can be, you know, people you think are doing dope work, um, self-care things, like favorite books, TV shows, anything like that. So um, any, any art that you are engaging with that you, that you believe deserves recognition. Right. Well, I suppose I'll start with, I'll take the obvious one, should I take the softball? I'll take the softball. So, um, The Wayward Women, which is a new play by Jared McDerris that Theatre Red is producing here in Milwaukee, opens on July 13th at the Alchemist Theatre and runs through, I always want to make sure I get it right, the 22nd. We do have a preview on July 12th. And cool. we do a pay what you can during the run. That will be on Monday, July 17th. So it's at the cool. Alchemist Theater in Bayview. Um, 
Tickets are available at www.theaterred.com. Theaterred, T-H-E-A-T-E-R hyphen R-E-D. Yeah. So that's our next production, and that's what we, you know, that's what we're excited about. Excited about bringing this new play to Milwaukee and telling this wonderfully funny female forward story. And um, yeah, I'm super excited for it. So yeah. I'll piggyback off of that really quick and come see the show. Um, but also the um, technique that we're using, I find it as an actor so frustrating, but also uh, liberating at the same time, if that makes sense. So the and I just got the book actually from oh, Amazon. So Secrets of Acting Shakespeare, yes, by Patrick Tucker. It's a really mm-hmm. cool book. Cool. I'm on chapter one, um, <laughs> but um, so far, like so many words, so much text, but just turning your brain off for a second and just going with what is on the page. So that's currently running through my head. I will be getting back to that once we're done with this. And um, if you can't see amazing theater from places like the West End or Broadway, go to National Theater Live Broadcast because they are awesome. And it makes me miss the city of London very much, but they do some pretty stellar and unique Shakespeare or classic um, productions. Not for everyone. The um, <laughs> Belgian director, I believe he's Belgian, Ivo or Ivo van Hove, he's done a few that have gotten a lot of attention where people either loved it or hated it. It's like had a gabbler um, with like white floor, white walls, and like huge chunks where it's just silence on stage <laughs> and like just the beating of a drum. And some people thought it was fantastic. Some people were like, what are you doing with Ibsen? Like, what's going on? But <laughs> frustrated or ecstatic sitting there it's always a good experience for me so if you can't see wayward women go see a national theater live broadcast that's my plug cool awesome yeah. uh the books that we're we're taking as our foundation for wayward women are the secrets of acting shakespeare by patrick tucker which is the unrehearsed shakespeare company of chicago go see their productions mm-hmm. um you will not be disappointed in what you see there um that is run by jared mcderis who wrote this play and who often acts and certainly directs very frequently. Um, and they're, they're usually cheap, they're usually on an artist night, um, and they're usually at a bar. So go see nice. some of her Shakespeare. Cool. Well, that's how Shakespeare was um, meant to be enjoyed, with, a, with an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> so please, um, that, that is, it is not the self-indulgent actor kind of Shakespeare that sometimes you see with drunk Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It is not drunk Shakespeare, it is unrehearsed Shakespeare in a bar. It is heavily scholarly researched and everyone has to have a certain amount of training before they're even allowed to play a major character. Um, you might even catch us in a performance. And you might even catch us. Marcy numbers. and I often, the last person I played was Claudius, um, and I also played Hamlet the King. Um, but the those are the things, and also the playing Shakespeare series by John Barton from the RSC in the 70s with Ian McKellen and uh, Patrick yeah. Stewart and David Suchet and all those people. Um, but and I want to plug this particular thing for my actors as well. Our gods must not be concepts, but the words of the text. Um, some people like to wash Shakespeare with a very specific way. Shakespeare wrote it all right there for you. Um, if you're an actor, he wrote it for you. So read Shakespeare as an actor. Don't read it as a scholar unless you have to write a paper about him or something, <laughs> which I did many. But uh, <laughs> I'm also acting and teaching fight direction. Hire a fight director. Every time you have a fight in your show, hire yes. a fight director. Please. <laughs> and an intimacy designer if you have kisses and sex. Yeah. Um, Safety so. first, <laughs> then story. Safety, then story. Nice. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what, with what we are up to, there are a lot of ways that you can do that. You can head over to scopymag.com. That's our website, uh, our magazine. Basically, we have our, all of our articles there. We have a list of our most recent podcast episodes as well. Um, otherwise, you can head over to our Facebook page. That's Scopy Magazine. We have all of our upcoming events for our summer series there. Maureen will tell you a little bit more about the details therein. Otherwise, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Scopy Mag. So if you love us and want to see our faces you should come to our scopy sessions series um, on Tuesdays you can find us at nightcap coffee bar down in Pilsen in Chicago um, and on Thursdays you'll find us at Redline tap up in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago um, this Tuesday we're gonna be premiering a set of monodramas with soprano Emily Cox um, it's called She After, written by Daniel Felsenfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, it is um, three monodramas that are a basic. They're basically about women who, like, have made the decision to like 
disappear from public life. Mm-hmm. From their public persona. From their public persona. Um, and it is going to be a wild ride, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on Thursday, we're going to have like a nice little intimate poetry night where we're inviting local poets to come to this bar in Rogers Park. And we're giving them each five minutes to read whatever they want. And then we're going to have a little um, discussion about it. Um, and then we're taking the next week off because we're going to be in New York. Um, and then the following week, on um, 4th of July, we're going to have a big fucking party uh, <laughs> down in Pilsen. And um, on Thursday the 6th, we are... Um, well, oh. Thursday the 6th, we can't announce yet. We don't have that. Oh, Thursday yet. the 6th is But the secret. details of 4th of July <laughs> are going to be... We're going to have Jonathan Hanel and Kelly Sheen of the Plucky Punk Plunkers come and play some new music there. They specialize in toy piano duets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, be, we're going to... The thing we were going to do originally on July... June 15th, we're now doing on July 4th, which is Beatitudes, which is a setting of the Beatitudes in critique of Donald Trump. Uh, and then we're also there will be a barbershop quartet and folk covers and besides that it's BYOB so feel free to bring some booze we sure will be we will be hanging out (laughs) and it'll be great we'll probably like drunkenly wander around Pilsen and try to find fireworks at some point or we won't Daniel is skeptical (laughs) 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 or maybe we'll just all go home who knows um Oh, yeah, and I'm here to emphasize the importance of donations. We run on a shoestring budget. We are doing a shitload of performances, and we do not have a shitload of money. So if you are able to give, it means the world to us. You can head to our website, scopymag.com. You can become a monthly subscriber for as little as $5 a month, and it literally is everything to us. Um, Your donations, just your donations have made this performance series possible. Mm-hmm. It's made it so that we can pay a large portion of our performers, and it is like it is so so important. So, like I said, scopymag.com. Give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. Yep. <laughs>